You're listening to Think, Think, Thought, a podcast about building thinking classrooms and teaching math. Hey everyone, welcome back. Kyle here with Megan. Hi guys. And today we're diving more into building thinking classrooms and mathematics by Dr. Peter Lilladal. Uh, we've talked about the intro, chapter one, chapter two, and now we're getting into chapter three, which we're really excited to share with you. Chapter three is all about where we get kids to work. So Megan, do you want to kick us off and give us a little overview of what this chapter is all about? Yeah, for sure. I guess the best quote to kind of talk about in terms of where students work is that sometimes students spend more time of their day sitting and writing in notebooks than they do sleeping. And so to kind of set the stage, if you will, that's kind of a concerning thing, hey, Kyle? Yeah, I think so. I think we all know kids sit too much during the day and we don't want to perpetuate that in our classrooms more than we have to. And at the end of the day, if we can get them up and moving and not just sitting the whole time, and that leads to more thinking, why wouldn't we be exploring this? Yeah. And I think in terms of the 14 practices, this is probably the one that's the most visible. And like when somebody walks into a classroom, especially when we are talking about um, normative structures, this is like the one that kind of s- kind of slaps you in the face of being like so different, which for anybody who does not know, chapter three is all about students working on vertical non-permanent surfaces, which is essentially just like whiteboards, windows, anything that is vertical c- and can also be erased. Yeah, so the way that Peter and his team came up with this practice, this best practice or whatever we're going to call it, was really interesting. They did a little bit of an experiment. They tested a bunch of different ways that students could be working, sitting in, working in a notebook, working on flip chart on a table, flip chart on a wall, whiteboard on a table or whiteboard on a wall. And they kind of dove into a few different metrics to determine what was the best for getting students thinking. Yeah. And um, I think actually the one that that sticks out to me the most is probably the time for first notation for the vertical whiteboard. It was 20.3 seconds. And for a vertical paper, it was 144 seconds. When I picture this, it actually gives me flashbacks to being a kid working on chart paper and the M teacher giving you the biggest permanent marker you have like ever seen in your whole life and you passing the marker back and forth between you and your friends hoping you don't have to be the person who, who has to like write on it which yeah. is hilarious <laughs> yeah and i like that peter looked at more than just the time to first notation because if we look across the the chart here and if you have a book with you we're looking at page 60 the time to first notation for a notebook was actually even less than the vertical yeah it was but if you look at the next line below, the time on task is significantly less than what we would see at a vertical whiteboard or, you know, a horizontal whiteboard for that matter. So let's talk about horizontal whiteboards because that's one of the questions that I get supporting teachers thinking about implementing thinking classrooms. Like, okay, well, I don't want to, you know, put all these whiteboards around my room. Can I just put them on desks or tables and we'll just do that? That seems to be easier. Why, why is that maybe not such a great idea or the best way to go about doing this? So it isn't bad per se. It's just that when you work on anything horizontal, there will always be somebody with a point of um, privilege over somebody else. Somebody will always be looking at the whiteboard um, upside down, which is one of the beautiful parts about 
the vertical whiteboards because everybody can stand back and their point of view is the same. Like their physical actual point of view will be very similar because everybody can look the same way. Yeah, they're all looking at the same orientation, right? No one's having to, that's, that, that's the word orientation. <laughs> yeah, no one's having to process this and flip it upside down in their brain and you know do all these other things that might be a barrier for somebody. Yeah, exactly. But I think the other thing that Peter gets into, and I think we all know this, is just how much better being on our feet is than being on our bums in a chair. Standing is so much better than sitting as far as getting us thinking. There's, for, there's a number of reasons for this. Oh, yeah. I think the number one problem is that sitting is just one of those non-thinking behaviors. And even like I have heard students talk about how they sit and take notes all day long. And there's just no engagement there. And I've heard students time and time again say they don't remember what happened at school because all they did was sit, right? And I think I can speak to a little bit of a, you know, experience in the classroom. I had a class when we were first getting started with thinking classrooms. They were kind of my guinea pig class. I had two <laughs> classes back to back and then I would go and teach it for about a month. It was fantastic. Good way to dive into all this. But the one day the students were pushing back, they were tired. They wanted to sit. They didn't want to stand anymore. So I said, okay, well, why don't you guys sit down and we'll compare that to the next day. And so we let them kind of sit and they were kind of, you know, up and down against their whiteboards. But as the teachers in the room, it was so obvious that as soon as they started to sit or kneel, the thinking just tanked. We did the same lesson, the same task the next hour with the same, same grade, different group of kids. And we were into the fifth level of extensions, whereas most of these groups in this sitting classroom didn't even get through the task originally. So it, it was a good proof of concept. And then we debriefed with the students and they were like, okay, I get it. I'll try my best to stand yeah. and break. Can I sit for a minute? I'm like, yeah, we can make that compromise if we need to. Oh yeah. Well, speaking as someone who could not stand still for the duration of their K to 12 journey was that teachers constantly were like, uh, Megan, sit down, Megan, uh, sit down, Megan, come back to your desk. It was constant. And I just find for me, school wasn't set up for me to learn. And I just see students who are like me and I just think, wow, we have finally given them an environment in which to be successful because standing is part of the game and like moving around. And that's the other beautiful piece is that my students in my four or five class, they move a ton. But guess what? Nobody really like notices. You can have those social butterflies and those wanderers who would destroy a class in the normative structure are actually fine. And they can kind of move in and out of like engaging with other groups. It's kind of like nice to see. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good way to include all the different types of learners and students that maybe need to burn off a little more energy in your classroom and keep them focused on something productive while doing so instead of getting into trouble. Right? The other thing Peter talks about beyond just the physical engagement and thinking that comes with it is when we're sitting, students become anonymous or they feel anonymous, seeking anonymity. I'm this person in a PD event. I'll try to find a corner or somewhere on the side so I don't have to be called. Back of the yeah, I know exactly where this is coming from. Um, he said, and I'll quote right from the book, having students standing immediately takes away that sense of anonymity and with it, the conscious and subconscious pull away from the tasks. So you notice as soon as kids sit down, they'll like grab their phone, they'll doodle on their piece of paper, whatever the case might be, but it's not related to the task. Sometimes you need those breaks, but we don't want them to be anonymous. We want to see all of our students. We want to give them a voice. We want to let them be engaged however they choose to be. And I think that getting them on their toes is a really good way to get that ball rolling. Yeah. 
And the other piece I had noticed with the vertical non-permanent services is that because the students are not anonymous, everything is visible to their own classmates, which is really great because then you see a lot of great knowledge mobility happening where um, groups are then getting different ideas from another group. Even today, like I was in a great class class minutes ago, like 20, 30 minutes ago, and we were actually doing the um, dice auction from Nat Banting. And my students were struggling to figure out all the different possibilities to roll two dice, but then one student had figured it out. And just like dominoes, the other kids were like, oh, oh, wow. Like, that's what it looks like. So I think it's important for them to see their own work, but also see each other's work because then they have to um, engage. Yeah, I think that that's a really key point is the, the kids can see each other's work, but also you as a teacher can kind of stand in the middle of the room or position yourself where you need to. And you can see wherever a group's at. You can see who needs help, who needs extensions, who's off task. All these different things makes vertical non-permanent surfaces such a bonus for you as a teacher. Something that you can manage if you've got a class of 30 kids. We've talked about this many times before, but doing this level of watching for every single student in your class, 30 kids or more in many cases, is not possible. But 10 groups, we can do 10 groups. You can keep an eye on that. And I think that's Absolutely. a huge benefit of implementing these vertical services. Oh, yeah. The one thing I've noticed is that it is really important for me to not have any students sit down and then go back to their desk. And that is just because when there's one student or one group who finishes or is done, having them sit down then puts them in a position of power in front of like everybody else because part of the reason why students feel so okay feeling vulnerable is because everyone is vulnerable everybody has their math out for everyone to see if you put somebody sitting down like instantly that's not the case and students will then disengage which is really sad to see yeah that would be sad and that's kind of anti everything we're trying to accomplish here so we want to make sure we keep students going. And that brings us back to tasks a little bit where when you're giving a task, it doesn't end, right? You need to have yeah. extensions or you need to have something else that those students could continue to work on at their space just to avoid that exact situation we're talking about. Um, Peter slips one little piece in here, which we know is such a key piece to think in classrooms. He talks about how using a, one marker per group will really allow you to see the benefits of knowledge mobility and collaboration. How do you go about doing this in your class? Well, in my class, there's 30 students and everybody like I'm always comes every time for sure. So there's always like 30. So I had 10 groups of uh, three and likely there will be several students who want to hog the marker. That is a big problem for us. Um, I used to just be like, move the like, marker like every like two minutes, which I realized I just didn't like the teacher I was when I was doing that. So now, and this is something that I saw Peter do in one of his workshops years ago, which is, so let's say I'm going to group six and then I grab the marker from that person's hand, make one tiny notation, which is meaningless, and then hand the marker off to the other group member. And that is just a subtle way of letting that group know, I want this person to have the marker without being really open and like I'm abrasive and be like, stop hogging the markers. It's like, you know what I want, but I don't need to make a big show here for it. 
Yeah. And I find when I do that exact move in a classroom and often I'm in a classroom where I don't know these students well, I might know their name, but I'm just really getting to know them. I tend to just pass the marker to whoever's the furthest away because that tends to be a good indicator of who is the least engaged. And it's pretty obvious usually, but I find that that's a really good move. If you're just getting a feel for it, whoever's standing the furthest away, perfect. Pass it to them subtly and then just walk away. And then they got the marker and they realize, hey, it's time to get going. Yeah, absolutely. Although the weird part is, though, is the fact like that using the student's marker can sometimes be weird because we have... Um, our own right so some kids look at me weird and be like why did you grab ours when you have yours right yeah <laughs> and that's interesting because he does talk a little bit about marker colors and i think it's important we talk about this too uh, he suggests that you as a teacher have a different color marker than your student and sometimes it's a red marker i know you like to use purple pick a color that you like because i've really allow students when they're looking around the room to notice where you've been where you've written maybe hints extensions whatever the yes. case is and also boxed in different pieces that you know are going to be something you're going to talk about. We'll get into that in a later yeah. chapter. The other piece with that is I tend to recommend, and he doesn't say this explicitly, but I tend to recommend trying to find ways to have your students have the same marker colors. Mm -hmm. They're all using black. They're all using blue. They're all using yes. purple. Whatever color you choose, because inevitably you're going to have kids be like, well, I want a blue marker and I've got a black marker. So it gets rid of that, but also it makes it your job so much easier when you're glassing around the room to see where you've been and keeping track. Absolutely. Well, and to continue on, on to know where you have been, I find at the end of every class, I like to look around to see how much purple is there. Because that is a good indication of how you were doing and how much you were maybe putting yourself into the task a bit too much. And maybe you need to back up because some days I'll be like, oof, there's a lot of on purple. This is not great. Or there will be one particular group and I'm like, okay, this group struggled. And it is almost a little reflection for you at the end of class to see how much of your color is on the boards. Nice little added bonus. So one of the things that we run into when we talk to teachers about setting up vertical non-permanent surfaces in the classroom is, you know, how do I do this? My classroom has this, this, and this. How do I make this happen? So he mentions a few different ways in the book, like using windows. Those are a great way to use it. One little pro tip if you happen to live in Canada or somewhere where it gets cold is if it's too cold outside, sometimes your dry erase marker will stick and not erase to those windows. So just make sure you have some warm water handy and that'll wipe right off. That's a little pro tip for you. Um, we, we like to use white book. They're like flip chart paper, but they're a dry erase surface. Uh, very versatile, something I can throw up on a wall with push pins or staples or tape really quickly. Painter's tape is really good if I'm not allowed to really make holes in, in walls. He talks about using cellophane. That'll just stick right to your wall, which is nice. Lots of different creative ways out there. How do you go about doing this in your classroom, Megan? Because I know your classroom's set up a little different. Yeah. Oh. Yes. Um, there is actually, there's one wall in which we can't use anything, which is unfortunate because with 30 kids, you want to use every wall. So there is one wall that's kind of like I'm off limits, but I have a garage door, which has been funny. Um, the other thing too is that... The white books are great, but you can cut them and turn them into wonky shapes. Yeah. There's nothing to say you have to use them to the full extent of what they are. And even I've been spending a lot of time in that K to one-ish grade level and cut them in half. Those kids don't need all of that room sometimes. They can just have half of it and it's perfect and it's great and the kids love it. And that way it's like half, half the space, right? 
I like that because I've, I've worked with some classrooms or some schools more specifically of turning their libraries into a thinking space where the teachers could bring their classrooms and the, the ends of the bookshelves just aren't quite the width of a white book. So we just cut them and make them the perfect size and it works great. And that's one thing some of our schools are trying to do. And I think is really good if your school happens to have the space is to have a room where you can take your students to do thinking classrooms. If you're just getting started or you want to get a bunch of people started, obviously you want to graduate to using your own classroom. But having a space you can go and tinker with and get a feel for it is such a good way to get started. So we highly recommend that. Well, yeah, this is um, great. My son and my husband were actually around one of our schools, their playground yesterday, and they were taking pictures of white books on like windows. <laughs> and he's like, hey, like, look. And I was like, that's so cool. But yeah, um, I do think our school division has done a wonderful job of trying to push those out as much as possible. Yeah, and I think there's so many different ways to do that. And I know there's a lot more hacks out there. People find ways to get around cupboards, get around hooks, whatever the case is. There's ways to do this. You know, you ask Peter about that. He's worked with thousands of classrooms and he said he's never come across one that they can't hack. And it usually costs under 100 bucks to do so. So if that's something that you're not sure about how you do this with this space, reach out to one of us or, you know, send it out to the Twitter sphere and we can help the others and see what we can find. With that, I think there's probably a good place to wrap things up, Megan. We know we're going to continue to talk about vertical non-permanent spaces as it's a part of everything that we'll do moving forward in the book. Absolutely. All right. See you guys. Thanks for tuning in to Think, Thank, Thunk. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app so you never miss a new episode. And as always, keep thinking, keep thinking, and keep thunking.